Chapter Five of The Escape of a Princess Pat by George Pearson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Venditti, MikeVenditti.com. It seemed as though I had just stepped off my whack of sentry go for my group when a kick in the ribs surprised me that it was stand to. I rubbed my eyes, swore, and rose to my feet. Such was the narrowness of the trench that the movement put me at my post at the parapet, where, in common with my mates, I fell to scanning the top for first signs of day and the Germans. The latter lay on the other side of the ravine from us, as they had since the fourth, except for such times as they had assaulted our position. The smoke from a prey and all the close-packed villages of a thickly populated countryside rose sullenly on every hand. Over everything there hung the pallor of the mist-ridden Flemish morning, deadly quiet, as was usual at that time of the trench day, when the tenseness of the all-night vigil was just merging into the revealing daylight. At half-past six the stillness was punctuated by a single shell, which broke barely in our rear. And then the ball commenced, the most intense bombardment we had yet experienced. Most of the fire came from the batteries in concealed positions on our right, whence, as on the fourth, they poured in a very destructive enfilade fire, which swept up and down the length of the trench like the stream of a hose, making it a shambles. Each burst of high explosive shells, each terrible pulsation of the atmosphere, if it missed the body, seemed to rend the very brain, or else stupefied it. The general result was beyond any poor words of mine. All spoken language is totally inadequate to describe the shocks and horrors of an intense bombardment. It is not that man himself lacks the imaginative gift of words, but that he has not the word tools with which to work. They do not exist. Each attempt to describe becomes more effrontery and demands its own separate apology. In addition, kind nature draws a veil for him over much of all the worst of it, that many details are spared his later recollection. He remembers only the indescribable confusion and the bursting claps of nearby flame, as foul in color and as smell as an addled egg. He knows only that the acid of the high explosive gas eats into the tissue of his brain and lungs, destroying, with other things, most memories of the shelling. Overhead an airplane buzzed. We could barely describe the figures of the pilot and of his observer, the latter signaling. No gun of ours answered. The dead and dying lay all about, and none could attend them. A rifle was a rifle. This continued for an hour, at the end of which time we poked our heads up and saw the infantry coming on in columns of mobs, some of them also very prettily, in the open order we had ourselves been taught. Every field and hedge spewed them up. We stood head and shoulders exposed above the ragged parapet, giving them rapid fire. They had no stomach for that, and retired to their holes. 
leaving many dead and grievously wounded. It was at this time that we saw the troops on our flanks falling back in orderly fashion. I called that fact out to the attention of Lieutenant Lane, who was the only officer left in our vicinity. He said that the last word he had received was to hang on. This we proceeded to do, and so, we are told, did the others. We learned later that the battalion roll-call that night showed a strength of one hundred and fifty men out of six hundred and thirty-five who had answered present twenty-four hours earlier. And the official records of the Canadian eyewitness Lord Beaverbrook, then Sir Max Aitken, as given in Canada in Flanders, state that those who survive and the friends of those who have died may draw solace from the thought that never in the history of arms have soldiers more valiantly sustained the gift and trust of a lady, referring to the color which had been worked for and presented to us by the Princess Patricia, daughter of His Royal Highness the Duke of Connaught, then Governor-General of Canada. We were on the apex of the line and were now unsupported on either side. It was about this time, I believe, that a small detachment of the King's Shropshire Light Infantry, a sister regiment in our brigade, fetched to the companies in our rear twenty boxes of badly needed ammunition and reinforced the Princess Patricias. Following the beating off of their infantry attack, the Germans gave us a short breathing spell until their machine guns had been retrained on our parapet and a school of light field guns dragged up into place. The airplane came out again dropping to within three hundred feet of our trench, and with tiny jets of vari-colored smoke-bombs, directed the terribly accurate fire of the enemy guns, already so close to, but so well insured against any harm from us, that they attempted no concealment, and the big guns on the right completed the devastation. This continued for another half-hour, at the end of which time there remained intact only one small traverse in the trench, which owed its existence to the fragment of chicken wire that held its sides up. The remainder was absolutely wiped out. This time there was no rapid fire, nor even any looking over the top to see if the enemy were coming in. Instead, the Germans fairly combed the parapet with their machine guns. Each indication of curiosity from us drew forth from them such a stream of fire that the top of the parapet spat forth a steady shower of flying mud, and which made it impossible for us to defend ourselves properly. Even had there been enough of us left to do so, the rest was chaos, a bit of pure hell. Men struggling, buried alive, and looking at us for the aid they would not ask for. Soldiers all and the Germans now pouring in in waves from all sides, and especially from our unprotected flanks and rear, hindered only by the delusory fire of our two weakened companies in the support trenches. We were receiving rifle fire from four directions and bayonet thrust from the Germans on the parapet, mowed down like sheep. And as they came on, they trampled our dead and bayoneted our wounded. The machine-gun crew had gone under to a man doing their best to the last. I think Sergeant Whitehead went with them, too. At least he was near there a short time before, and I never saw him or any of the gun crew again. 
The only living soul near that spot was Royston, dragging himself out from under a pile of debris and covered with mud and blood, his face horribly swollen to twice its normal size, blinded for the moment. To quote Canada in Flanders again, at this time the bombardment recommenced with great intensity. The German bombardment had been so heavy since May 4th that a wood which the regiment had used in part for cover was completely demolished. The range of our machine-guns was taken with extreme precision. All without exception were buried. Those who served them behaved with the most admirable coolness and gallantry. Two were dug out, mounted, and used again. One was actually disinterred three times and kept in action till a shell annihilated the whole section. Corporal Dover stuck to his gun throughout, and, although wounded, continued to discharge his duties with as much coolness as if on parade. In the explosion that ended his ill-fated gun, he lost a leg and an arm, and was completely buried in the debris, conscious or unconscious. He lay there in that condition until dusk, when he crawled out of all that was left of the obliterated trench and moaned for help. Two of his comrades sprang from the support trench, by this time the fire trench, and succeeded in carrying his mangled and bleeding body. But, as all that remained of this brave soldier was being lowered into the trench, a bullet put an end to his sufferings. No bullet could put an end to his glory. George Easton was firing with me at the gray mass of the oncoming horde. "'My rifle's jammed!' he cried. "'Take mine!' And I stooped to get one from a casualty underfoot. But a moment later, as I fired from the parapet, my bayonet was broken off by a German bullet. I shouted wildly to Kosh to toss me one from nearby. Just then, the main body of Germans swarmed into the end of the trench. Of this, Lord Beaverbrook says, at this moment the Germans made their third and last attack. It was arrested by rifle fire, although some individuals penetrated into the fire trench on the right. At this point, all the Prince's Patricias had been killed, so that this part of the trench was actually tenantless. Those who established a footing were few in number, and they were gradually dislodged, and so the third and last attack was routed as successfully as those which had preceded it. His conclusion that we had all been killed was justifiable, even though, fortunately for me, it was an erroneous one. So I am glad, for other motives than those of mere courtesy, to be able here to set him right. Bugler Lee shouted to me, I'm shot to the leg! A couple of us seized him, planning to go down to where the communication trench had once been. But he stopped to sing, it's no good, boys. It's a dead end. They're killing us. Kosh swore. Don't give up, kid. We'll beat the... yet. A German standing a few yards away raised his rifle and blew his head off. Young Brown broke down at this. They had just done in his wounded pal. Oh, look! Look what you've done to Davy! And fell to weeping. And with that another put the muzzle of his rifle against the boy's head and pulled the trigger. Young Cox from Winnipeg put his hands above his head at the order. His captor placed the muzzle of his rifle squarely against the palm and blew it off. There remained only a bloody and broken mass dangling from the wrist. I saw a man who had come up in the draft with me on the fourth rolling around in death agony, 
tossing his head loosely about in the wild pain of it, his pallid face a white mark in the muck underfoot. A burly German reached the spot and without hesitation plunged his saw-edged bayonet through the throat. Close by, another wounded man was struggling feebly under a pile of earth, his legs projecting so that only the convulsive heaving of the loose earth indicated that a man was dying underneath. Another German observed that, too, and shoved his bayonet through the mud and held it savagely there until all was quiet. This I did not see, but another did and told me of it afterward. Sergeant Philpotts had been shot through the jaw so that he went to his knees as the bullock does at the slaughtering. He supported himself wavingly by his hands. The blood poured from him so that he was all but fainting with the loss of it. A big German stood over him. Philpotts looked up. Play the game. Play the game, he muttered weakly. The German coolly put a round through his head. I was still without a bayonet, and seeing these things said to Easton, We'd better beat it. He swore again. Yes, they're murdering us. No use stopping here. Come on. And just then he too dropped. I thought him dead. There was no use my stopping to share his fate or worse. It was now every man for himself. At a later date we met in England. The other half of the regiment lay in support, two hundred yards away in Belleward Wood, and in front of the chateau and lake of that name, where my draft had lain on the fourth. I made a dash for it. What with the mud and the many shell-holes, the going was bad. I was indistinctly aware of a great deal of promiscuous shooting at me, but most distinctly of one German, who shot at me about ten times in as many yards, and from quite close range. I saw I could not make it. I flung myself into a Johnson hole, and as soon as I had caught my breath, scrambled out again and raced for the trench I had just left. I was by this time unarmed, having flung my rifle away to further my flight, notwithstanding which another German shot at me as I went towards him. As I landed in the trench, an angry voice shouted something I could not understand, and I scrambled to my feet in time to see a German sullenly lower his rifle from the level of my body at the command of a big, black-bearded officer. End of chapter 5